0: Our study of God's Word together this morning brings us back to Philippians chapter 1 into verses 1 to 11, just like last week, although this morning we'll focus more particularly on verses 5 to 11, so you can be finding that text. What did you think a few minutes ago this morning when we moved into the time of the preached Word by reading from James 2, 14 and following? I wonder what thoughts might have come... To your mind as we read that passage, because any time a sermon is preceded by reading from James 2.14 and following, the next hour is probably not going to be boring. Uh, that's likely, and that's because questions that are brought up in that passage about the relationship between our faith and our works, uh, that is a text that has produced, long produced a slew of disagreements and questions and issues. It has produced departures from the gospel, misunderstanding the things that are described there. The book of Galatians, for example, is largely concerned with that notion, isn't it? That uh, trusting in our works to be the basis of our salvation, it constitutes belief in a different gospel altogether. Matters of the relationship between our faith and our works are significant indeed. Yeah, not boring if only because we recognize that the stakes are high when we think about such things. But why are we bringing that up this morning? Why would we open with a reading from that text as we're starting to look back into Philippians chapter 1? The reason is quite simple. It's because those dual concepts of, of our responsibility before God in our living and at the same time of our complete reliance upon God our complete dependence upon the grace of God, those dual concepts are not only going to come up in Philippians again and again, but in fact, they're previewed for us here by Paul in his introduction. This would give us a good reason to consider it this morning. It speaks to how we ever decide when to think and wrestle with what ideas. There are a lot of ideas out there, aren't there, that we need to think about. A lot of areas of thought and study. How do you know when it's time to stop and wrestle with, with one of them in particular? Sometimes it is in the due course of God's providence in our lives when he brings particular circumstances to us and because of those we suddenly need to understand that better or this more carefully. Uh, another time that brings that uh, opportunity is one like this, when we are committed to studying God's word systematically, not just jumping from pet topic to pet topic. And in the course of that study, His Word sets an idea before us. Isn't it a great benefit of what is called expositional study of God's Word when we are forced to reckon with everything that is found in it as it's spoken? And that's what's happened to us this morning regarding this topic. We could hear it last week when we walked through the whole of verses 1 to 11. Paul is weaving two truths together as he encourages the Philippians in right action and he declares our genuine responsibility towards such action while at the same time crediting our right activity and anything right in us to God's sanctifying grace. We heard those things last week, but we were focused on seeing what he's doing in the whole of this introduction. So this morning we have the chance to think more deeply about what exactly we're being taught as he's describing the relationship between these two realities. Our job this morning is to notice it, to notice what he says here in particular, the emphasis that he's making upon our actions and how he makes that emphasis. And then because God in his providence has brought this to our attention this morning, Our task is to submit our minds to it. We want to wrestle with this so that we might walk faithfully after our Lord. I'll read once again from the English Standard Version, Philippians chapter 1. We'll just read all of verses 1 to 11 one more time. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? The letter opens in this way. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We see this morning, the interplay between responsibility and reliance. And especially we're going to see that in two places this morning in this text. We'll see it first in verses 5 to 7, and then second in verses 9 to 11. Look with me again at verses 5 to 7. Responsibility and reliance. What we read there is this, Paul is thanking God for them, Every time he prays for them, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do you notice the word partnership there? Because of your partnership in the gospel. It may well be, it likely is, that he has in mind in part something broad, the general, you could say, the philosophical reality of their support. He knew that they were with him in spirit, we might say. But there is little doubt that what he has foremost in his mind when he uses that word is not that general reality, but rather the visible, tangible expressions of that support. In particular, in this case, what he's speaking to directly is the reality of their financial support. We traced it the first week we introduced Philippians, noticing how regularly in their history with Paul they have sent him these financial gifts. They've supported him when he needed it. It's well recognized that that's what Paul is talking about when he speaks here of their partnership with him. For example, Sinclair Ferguson notices that Quote, Paul uses this term several times in his letters when talking about the collection which the Christians in Macedonia had made for those in Jerusalem. So he uses this particular word to refer very directly, very obviously in these other places, to financial support. We find that in Romans 15.26, 2 Corinthians 8.4, 2 Corinthians 9.13. He also uses the verb form of this same word in referring to sharing financial burdens in particular in three other texts, Romans 12.13, Galatians 6.6, Philippians 4.15. All that simply to say, Paul repeatedly uses this word when he is talking about a kind of fellowship or partnership or participation that is tangible, that's visible. That's what he's emphasizing here. Not their emotional support, per se, but their tangible support. Now, noticing that, though, this morning is just a means to a greater end. What we need to notice is that Paul describes this partnership of theirs, these visible works, these actions that they are taking in their faith, Paul describes this as the basis for his confidence in their salvation. We noticed that last week a bit, didn't we? He's... He is thanking God for them, for their partnership, what they mean to him. They've been a blessing to him. But ultimately, he's thanking God for them because their partnership has displayed the fact that God, as he puts it here, has begun a good work in them. That's what he's thankful for. And this is a good work that Paul is sure God is going to bring to completion. He's pointing to the good works coming out of them as evidence that they are partakers of grace with him. Verse seven, there's one Bible commentator by the name of Moises Silva, who has an excellent commentary on Philippians, seen as one of the best, most reliable. He he describes this in, in, in a very helpful way. I wanted to share this with you and I'm going to read it to you twice Because I, I want us to think about a particular thing he says here. So listen to how he puts this. No sooner has Paul made clear that God is the author of their salvation, than he shifts his focus again in verse seven, where he commends them, not God, for their constancy in supporting Paul, whatever the circumstances. Of course, God is the only grounds of our confidence but the apostle claims no insight into God's secret counsel. His assurance that the Philippians persevere to the end arises from the external, visible evidence that their lives provided." That is a statement worth thinking about for just a minute. Silva is something of a giant in the world of historic confessional Christian teaching. He taught for 15 years at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, He's been the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He's an ordained minister in the OPC, the nomination. All of that tells you this guy is solidly biblical, thoroughly reformed in his thinking. How can he ascribe so much to the works of these Christians? And more importantly, would we agree with the way that he's doing that? Is, uh, is he saying something that is biblical? Is he saying that we are saved by our works? Is that what he was saying? I'll read the quote again here in just a moment. You'll you'll hear that the helpful point he is making, and I, I read it twice because this is so important for us to understand. The point that he's making is a point about our confidence, our assurance. He's asking the question, on what basis do we in this life Find confidence of the inward spiritual presence and work of God in a person. So I reread his statement and see if you can hear it. Why is he saying that our visible external works are what evidences, not causes, evidences God's work in us? No sooner has Paul made clear that God is the author of their salvation than he shifts his focus again in verse 7 where he commends them, not God, for their constancy in supporting Paul whatever the circumstances. Of course, God is the only grounds of our confidence. But the apostle claims no insight into God's secret counsel. His assurance that the Philippians will persevere to the end arises from the external, visible evidence that their lives provided." He says several things there, but the reason he's giving is simple we are given no sight into the secret counsel of God. God knows perfectly, God has always known perfectly exactly whose lives he has planned to invade, whose lives he has invaded with his saving mercy and grace. This is knowledge that God has, but we do not. What's more, we also know from Christ himself that there will be many who will say to him on the last day, Lord, Lord, who will receive the condemnation that we read about in Matthew chapter 7. I never knew you. Depart from me, you, you remember what he calls them. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We know that that day is coming and that that experience will be had by many, he says. So how do we think about our, our, our confession of faith, the profession of faith of those around us, How do we have confidence? We should have confidence. There's much reason for confidence. How do we have it? It is right and just for us to live in love and hope. You could say to default, as it were, to taking people at their word when they make professions of saving faith in Christ. We are indeed saved by grace alone through faith alone, aren't we? And professions, public professions of faith provide a sort of starting basis for how we identify those who belong to the community of Christ's new covenant. But see, we're talking here about something slightly different than that. We're talking about the question of confidence. We're asking about what the Bible tells us to look at as evidence of his saving work in a person. And of course, again and again, the Bible answers that question with a single word, with the word fruit. The tree is known by its fruit, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33. Or John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Galatians chapter five will describe fruit of the spirit. All of which, when you read that list, is borne out in our relationships with each other. These things are seen. They come out of us. This is not a concept that we're unfamiliar with. And what Silva is saying is that this is exactly how our external actions, how the fruit of our lives serves. It reveals. It evidences what kind of tree we are dealing with. And so far, what we're noticing out of verses five to seven is that Paul does indeed speak that way. And he speaks that way even as the, the whole context is one of prayer to God for such things and acknowledging God as the only grounds for any spiritual life in a person and thus the only grounds for our confidence. Nonetheless, he's making clear that they're displays of faithfulness that he has been able to see and experience are the reasons he feels so confident to make the sorts of affirmations he does about their future. He says the evidence is so clear, if we, if we put verse 7 in the negative, he says the evidence is so clear that it would be wrong for me to think any differently given what has come out of you, Philippians. So we see both at work in these dynamics in verses five to seven. We see responsibility, he is calling them and commending them for embracing a particular path of showing their faith. He's also done that though in the context of complete reliance upon the work of God. We we see it again in verses nine to 11, but we see it in a different way. And it's so helpful to see them both at once this morning. Look secondly here at verses nine to 11. Now this time, instead of starting with their works and then saying that that confirms inward spiritual life, this time we see him pray for God's inner work in them and then tell us how that produces visible consequences in in our lives. He says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. These are things, he says, he is praying for to God. Only God is the source. Only God can give increase in the ways Paul is so desiring to see in them. In verse 9, he is praying for God to cause them to abound in love. He says, the kind of love that brings knowledge and discernment. And what will the result of that answer prayer be? Well, as it turns out, the, the praying of that prayer creates a string of cause and effect that we see here. Verse 10, the result will be that they will be able to approve the things that are excellent. We looked at that phrase last Sunday. But again, verse 10, the result of that, the result of that growth, is that they will be pursuing, he says, purity and blamelessness unto the day of Christ. You may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. We need to notice something carefully there, though. We need to understand what kind of purity he's talking about. Ferguson and many others prefer the New American standards choice of sincere, to translate that word, rather than pure, that you may be sincere. And I I expect that the reason that that would seem to be perhaps a more helpful translation is because this this is describing what comes as we learn to approve what is excellent. It's maybe more common for us to speak of becoming pure and blameless with that kind of language When we're talking about our justification, as we are, uh, on the basis of the work of Christ, declared righteous before the throne of God, clothed in Christ's righteousness before him, often in that context of justification, we will speak about becoming pure and blameless. But this is not that focus. This is a different focus. It's a different point. This is describing our sanctified life in this life whereby I mean think of the progression there in that in, in that thought as we come to by God's grace prioritize rightly we come to judge rightly what happens is we come to distance ourselves from what is from the bad whether that be downright sin or that which is merely unprofitable to us we come to distance ourselves from that and we come to draw closer to what is good this is what happens as God grows us and gives us the capacity to discern in these ways. As I describe that, are we not talking about actions and decisions that show themselves in all kinds of ways in our living? I mean, at that point what we're talking about is change, growth in the realm of, the very broad realm of the usage of our time, uh, or areas of involvement that we choose to place ourselves. You could think of it this way, when you have had those times, and I am sure you have, we all have, if we are of a certain age at least, when you've had those times, when you've looked back on your life with some pain, and you've said, man, why? Did I care so much about that? Why didn't I care more about this? When you've had those moments, what does that look like? Always it boils down to actions, choices. And the point is, Paul says, this is a reality. This growth like this is a reality that we must pray to God for. But that as he grants it, as he leads us to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, the reality of that is going to come out in our lives. When God grants us the growth that we're praying for, when he grants us sanctification, that work of God is inevitably showing itself in our living. And we call that growth fruit, don't we? And of course, verse 11 speaks directly to it. As he aligns this growth and the produce from it with the idea of, he, he says there, being filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, Thinking about verse 11 lets us reiterate all over again. We need to do it over and over again if we're thinking about our works in this life. Verse 11 lets us remember that although Paul is going to, and we'll see it more shortly, he is going to exhort us to take responsibility For our obedience to God's call on our lives. Responsibility for our conduct in this life. As Paul does that, he will never speak of our good conduct as if it were explained by us. In any way that could be separated from God's gracious provision. You see in verse 11 why that is kept in our mind. You see how he ends that? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. It comes through him. Just like life travels from the vine into the branches that are connected to that vine. Someone somewhere, I think, gave that as an illustration, didn't they? Oh yeah, it was our Lord himself. That's how this works. So that the vine becomes the explanation for any life that is seen in the fruit of Out of those branches. Already Paul has been determined to hold this reality out to us. Equally as he holds out to us the reality of our responsibility. He did it in verse 6 when he described the partnership from the Philippians. Which again they chose to do. He's praising them for. When he described that partnership as God having begun a good work in them. That's how he describes it. It is such a huge concept that Paul is going to confront us with again and again in this letter. Maybe confront us is an overly negative way to say it. He's going to give us a chance to consider, to wrestle with with this inevitability again and again. There was one scholar of the Bible back in the mid-19th century. I I see his name come up over and over in, in current uh, more current works, there, sometimes you just notice a person that they reference, seem to reference over and over. This is one of those guys. Joseph Lightfoot was his name. He, he wrote back then about this tension that we're talking about, the tension between people's accountability for their own spiritual conduct and their need, nonetheless, to rely completely on God's grace to meet that obligation. That's, there's tension there, isn't there? He described that tension as the paradox of all religion. It's a striking way to describe that. It is at the heart of some of the deepest doctrinal wrestlings in church history, isn't it? It is, depending on where one lands on the spectrum there, it is what lies behind so many false gospels. I mean, so many twisted explanations of how God interacts with sinners. Some of those perversions are on one side of a spectrum, what we would call the, of the antinomian variety that says that our way of life is completely irrelevant. God cares not at all about how we live and walk in this life. I had a professor in college who taught us earnestly that uh, the day that you come to Christ, he, he thought in terms of uh, coming down the aisle and, and praying a prayer, if you meant it with emotion, You could leave the church that day and never think another thought of God again. Never return to his people, reject him completely, and God doesn't care because you were safe in that day. The way you live is not relevant to God. I've had someone try to teach that in my presence. It's a horrible perversion. It is an idea that's out there. There are other twists and perversions on the other side of the spectrum, the legalism side of the spectrum, that would believe our works and effort to earn God's forgiveness, to be the basis of God's forgiveness. The point is that learning to hold these two realities in a way that aligns with Scripture, learning to do that is very important indeed for us as Christians. And apparently it was something that this Philippian church needed to understand better too. Because now that Paul has modeled the categories, these two realities are going to come up again and again in what we'll see in the months to come. Would you just notice these with me so that we can see it coming? We'll hear of the importance of their conduct again explicitly in verse 27 of this same chapter as he tells them, and notice the words he uses, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." There is a way of living that is worthy of the gospel. And there's a way of living that is unworthy of it. We'll see it in chapter 2. And what I imagine is the two most significant verses on this subject, perhaps. Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get to work. Shape your desires. Discipline your desires, your will, so that the work that comes out of it is fitting. Oh, and by the way, it is God who is working in you to do both of them. You can't even want the right things without God's work in you. There's a paradox there. He'll exhort them in their conduct in the very next two verses as well. He'll tell them to put away grumbling and disputing. He says, So that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And he'll again in chapter 3 present himself as an example. We've seen him be an example in this introduction. But he'll do it explicitly in verses 12 to 15 there of chapter 3. It is an amazing description that we see there. Especially given that it's coming from Paul. From the writer of Romans himself. The one through whom God declared to us no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The one who declared that if we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The one who assured us. That there is nothing in life that can separate us from his love. That man describes his approach to to the rest of his life like this. In chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Maybe now you can see more clearly why we would begin this morning in James chapter 2 as we did. This is the steadfast declaration of God's word. The very thing that Martin Luther put so eloquently in the 16th century when he said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's eloquent because of its simplicity. It may be that if we heard him say it in German, it wouldn't sound quite so eloquent to our ears. I've never heard anything spoken in German that I've said Ah, eloquent. But in English, the the, the power is in the simplicity and the truth. And that's what's most important. he's, He's exactly right, isn't he? By saving faith, we are united to Christ like a branch is united to a vine. That's Jesus' illustration in John 15. And his whole point was that true life is flowing through that person. So that fruit, the fruit that comes from the presence of the Spirit of God, is inevitable. It is inevitable. Now, having said that, we should maybe say three things together to that effect, and not that one by itself. Number one would be that. Spiritual fruit is inevitable in the life of a believer. Vine to branches. Number two, however... We understand this to be true. Spiritual fruit is not produced equally in every believer. We know that from simple experience. But Matthew 13 describes God's work in us as bearing fruit, but fruit of different amounts. He speaks of some 30-fold and some 60-fold and some 100-fold growth that is coming from God. Number three, the dichotomy described in Philippians is true of that fruit. It is a responsibility for us to pursue good good works, doing the things that we, we know to be pleasing to God. We're given that responsibility in this life to pursue those things, even as we understand it to be entirely dependent upon the gracious work of God in us. The dichotomy is present in how we think about the very works that we would do in this life. And notice that in that way, the Bible statements about our works are exactly like the Bible statements about our faith. What is faith? Saving faith. Our faith in Christ is a gift we are given by God, isn't it? Ephesians 2:8, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Our saving faith is a gift from God. And our saving faith in Christ is commanded of us, isn't it? What must I do to be saved? Acts 13, Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're commanded to believe upon him. It's the paradox of all religion. What do we do with these two realities as we find them in Scripture and we seek to hold them and to hold them well together? Well, as I said, this is not the first time, it is the first time, this is not the last time that we will be Uh, coming to these issues as we're working through Philippians. But with it being the first time, what I would do this morning is simply answer that question with with one encouragement. The question is, what do we do with these two realities? Here's my encouragement to you this morning. Don't overthink them such that you come to handle them backwards. Don't overthink them such that you come to handle them backwards backwards. They are things to be wrestled with and much thought needs to be given to them. But there's a way to think about them that leads us to handle them in exactly the opposite uh, way that is proper and right and helpful. A correct way to approach this would be something like this. It would be for us to recognize the two, to focus on the commands that God has given us, to the command to believe and the command to work, to strive to bring our mind, our life into conformity with that belief. We're commanded to believe, we're commanded to work that belief out into our lives. So the correct would be to focus on those commands while constantly gaining peace and rest from the reality of God as only origin. Now if you do that backwards, here's what it looks like. Someone who is handling them backwards comes to focus on the absolute necessity of dependency upon God in a way that leads them to actually become complacent or fatalistic about the commands. Well, I can't obey unless God grants it, so I guess there's nothing I can do. Is that what we're, what we're hearing? Again, it's exactly the same in reference to our faith. I remember talking with a man years ago over several meetings who had taken the gift reality of saving faith to heart, The, 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 the complete dependency that that implied, and the result was in his life, he had despaired. He had thrown up his hands regarding the command to believe. Well, I guess I can never know if I've really trusted in Christ, and I guess there's nothing I can do about it, is there? It's all up to him. And of course, the response to that has to be, of course there is. Of course there's something you are to do. Believe, put your trust on him and not on yourself. What God has shown you is that you can't drum up in yourself the will to do it, the desire to do it, the sense of the need of it. It, Naturally we are dead, our eyes are blinded. But if he's opened your eyes so that you can see the need, you see the offer, you see that it's right and good, you see that Christ is in fact sufficient for sinners, what are you to do? Believe, depend upon him with your life, trust in him as your savior, obey the command. It's that same dynamic with our works. All that the dependency side of this dual equation does for us is make clear to us, number one, where all the credit goes. And number two, whose power we are relying on as we walk. If I find myself to be walking, if I find myself to be growing in knowledge and discernment of the will of God and desiring that such that my life is, if I find those things happening, what I'm finding is that God's grace and power is at work in me. Don't overthink it such that you come to handle them backwards. God has thus worked, doubtless in a way that is quite mysterious to us in its entirety. He has so worked that in the end, His people will be with Him forever. They will have seen and believed because He had opened their eyes, Acts 26, 18, because He had given them life when they were dead, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. They will have lived out of the life-giving vine that is Christ, such that true spiritual fruit will have been born in them in differing measures, to be sure. And yet each one of them will stand in the last day, forgiven, reconciled to their creator. And each one of them will cast their crowns before his throne and will shout with one voice. Not to us, but to your name be glory. My friends, is this not a wonderful hope-filled, confidence-inspiring, and action-motivating picture of God's plan to save sinners. Let's pray together. God, when we come to the deep mysteries of your ways that you have allowed us a small insight into, When we come to those things, we echo Paul's reaction in Romans 11. We say with him, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. God, we recognize this morning that we can marvel at great things and still fail to handle them in ways that reflect truth. Truth. And I pray for us. I pray for those among us who do not yet know you savingly. That by your work, they would recognize, maybe even today, they would recognize the reality in themselves. That they can at the same time know what is wrong and evil and yet love to do it. I pray that you would show them not only that that is true of them, but the implication of that, that they deserve to die. I pray that you would so enliven them, that they would be capable of the great shame and fear that that life deserves, that they would flee to the only Savior you have given to mankind. And as they do that, Lord, I pray that they would quickly come to see that they owe every bit of that life that brought them to you. They owe it to you. It is a gift. I also pray for each one of your children in this room this morning, especially in light of what we have seen and what we've been saying, my prayer is that you would be growing us so that every bit of what we find in your word would be applied in light of the clarity of your goodness and your trustworthiness. In light of your own self-identification that you gave to Moses when he asked you who you were. And you answered, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God, may it be so in us, your people, that what you've taught us about yourself would only produce lives of contentment and trust and joy and peace, even as we strive more and more toward growth and conformity to the image of your Son. We ask all of this in his name, in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.